Okay, let's begin our topic tonight with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this evening and the opportunity to talk about your remnant church. And Lord, we need wisdom. We need understanding. We need the Holy Spirit to guide our hearts and minds to help us to understand what can be considered a difficult topic. But Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit is going to speak to every heart here and you're going to make it as simple as possible so that we can understand it. And we're counting on that. We're praying for that. And we're asking you, Lord, to give us the wisdom that we need so that we can understand this topic, so that we can be prepared for the work that you want to do in our hearts and in our lives. And we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight our topic is Revelation's Remnant, and I want to go straight to the Bible, so turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, and that's going to be page 1131 in your seminar Bible. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verses 13 through 18. The Bible says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea of Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I don't know if you are familiar with this or not, but the fact is that the Catholic Church believes that this passage of Scripture gives Peter and the successors of Peter the high and lofty position of being the rock on which Christ would build His church. But I think that that is a mistaken interpretation of that passage. Peter does mean stone, but when Jesus said, I will build My church on that rock, He was referring to the statement that Peter had made that He was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and on that truth is what He would build His church. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus said, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And who is the rock that he's talking about there? He's talking about himself, right? And in 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul wrote, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. And so what did Jesus mean when He said that He would build His church upon that rock? We, we can't take one obscure verse and build our Bible doctrine around that, right? We've got to look at the weight of evidence. We've got to see what the majority of the Bible seems to be saying and try and determine what He's in fact saying there. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, Jesus, just a few verses later, had to turn to Peter and rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. So if the church was built upon the rock of Peter, then guess what? 
the gates of hell just prevailed against the church, didn't they? And so clearly that's not what it's talking about. But let me bring something else into connection with this. I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 18. That's going to be page 1247 of that seminar Bible. John chapter 18. And of course, this is the passage where Jesus is brought before Pilate and uh, they're having a conversation there. John chapter 18, and notice what it says in verse 33 through 37. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I want you to notice there that Jesus did not say that He came to bear witness to a truth. He didn't say, I came to bear witness to some truth. He said, I came to bear witness to the truth, right? And He summarizes His purpose in coming to this earth as bearing witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth, He said, hears My voice. And then in verse 38, Pilate said to Him, What is truth? And when He had said this, He went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in Him. Now we've talked a lot about the truth in this seminar. We also talked about the fact that there are many people today that think that truth is relative. And certainly, uh, Pilate was one of those. But man, I sure wish that he would have waited for Jesus to answer that question, right? That Jesus would have told us what is truth. But of course, Pilate didn't want to hear it, right? He immediately left the room. But of course, we know that Jesus later on did tell us what is truth. He said, I am the truth, the way, and the life. Amen? Now, I want to show you something else here. I'd like you to turn back just a little bit to John chapter 8. And I want to show you something that's happening here in verse 31 and 32. It says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed Him, If you abide in My Word, you are My disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the what? And the truth shall set you free. All through His ministry, Jesus made a strong emphasis on the truth, didn't He? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Truth is good news, isn't it? You know, it's not bad news, but sometimes there are some people that think that the truth is going to make life worse. And there are even Christians who don't want to hear the truth, right? Because we fail to see that the truth no matter how challenging it may be to us, it's the truth 
that sets us free. And certainly you have heard some truths in this seminar that may have challenged you greatly, right? John 17, verse 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Friends, I am a Christian. I have cast my lot with Jesus Christ. I believe that He is my Savior. He is my friend, my Lord, my Master. And I don't think that Jesus makes mistakes. I think that He has never been wrong. I don't think that He will ever be wrong. He loves me. He died for me. He has a plan for my life. And I believe whatever He says is true. Can you join me in that sentiment? And Jesus said that He came to bear witness to the truth and that knowing the truth and continuing in His Word, we would be set free. So I just don't buy into that popular sentiment that we have to settle for the fact that every church has some truth and some error. Right? And that it's all a matter of interpretation and we just have to resign ourselves to the fact that we can never really know the truth. I'm not buying that because Jesus said to His disciples and He's saying to us that we shall know the truth. And I believe Jesus. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. I don't know if you've caught it, but we just shared four major truths. The first truth is that Christ came to bear witness to the truth. The second truth is that the truth will set you free. The third truth is that you can know the truth. And the fourth truth is that the church was established to promote the truth. That is the purpose of the church. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus said, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. He established His church to uphold and to promote the truth. But I have a question. Have the gates of hell prevailed against God's church? Jesus established only one church, and that church was to be the pillar and the ground of truth. And so I ask you again, has the devil so splintered the Christian faith that you can't go to a church for truth without finding error along with it? Is the church no longer the pillar and the ground of truth? Or is it like the yin and the yang? Remember that eastern symbol that we saw where it had that black dot in the great big white area? which indicated that there's a little bit of evil and all good. Or that white dot in that big black area indicating that there's a little bit of good in all evil. Is that what it means to be God's church today? Or does God have a people on earth today who are called His church? Well, if He does, what would that mean? I'd like to pause for a moment and just consider the question of what it means to be God's church. 
I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We've already looked uh, uh, quite a bit at this story of the woman at the well, but I want to look at yet another aspect of it. It's going to be page 1224 of that seminar Bible. And notice what it says in verses 19 through 24. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, I'd like to have you put yourself in the place of that Samaritan woman for a moment. To some people, Jesus' words may sound a bit arrogant. Here is this woman that felt that her particular views were just as equally valuable as others. And Jesus says to her, look, you don't even know what you're worshiping. But the group that I'm with, the Jews, we know what we're worshiping because salvation comes from the Jews. In other words, you want to know what salvation is, you need to go to the Jews. The Jewish church, right, if you will. God's church. But why were they God's church? Was Jesus saying that the Jews were the only ones that were going to be saved? No, because He was offering her salvation, wasn't He? Was He saying that there were no problems with the Jews? No, because right after this, they crucified Him, right? So what exactly was He saying? I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. It's going to be page 1295 in that seminar Bible. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verse 1 and 2. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles or the words of God. Right? In other words, they were given the words of the prophets. They were given the words of Moses. They were given the oracles of God. Now turn to Romans chapter 9. And notice what it says there in verses 3 through 5. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that God entrusted the Jewish nation with the truth. He gave them the oracles of God, the law of God, the promises of God. And so they were God's vessel of truth. Amen? But let me ask you a question. Did they live up to that truth? No. But the truth was still committed to them. They were the pillar and ground of truth for that time. 
But they were intended to proclaim that truth to all of the nations around them. But because they themselves were disobedient, the others around them never came to understand the truth. And when the Jewish nation utterly rejected God's truth, she ceased to be His church. And Jesus was forced to say, you remember in Matthew chapter 21, He went into the temple and He said, My house is to be a house of prayer. Right? But after they rejected Him as their Messiah, in Matthew 23, verse 37, He said, Your house is left to you desolate. Right? They were no longer the chosen vessel of God. And so when we're talking about God's church, we're talking about a vessel of truth. The pillar and the ground of truth. It's not that no one else can be saved or that there's no problems in the church or even that everyone in the church is fully obedient to the truth. It simply means that there is a place where you can find God's truth. Amen? But would there always be such a place? That's a great question. In John chapter 4, verse 23, we read it just a moment ago, Jesus said, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. He's saying that true worshipers, it's not about this mountain or that mountain, it's not about Jerusalem, but it's about the truth, isn't it? It's not about a physical location. It's about worshiping in truth. Now, with that in mind, listen to what the prophet Joel says in chapter 2, verse 32. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Joel says that there is going to be deliverance for the remnant who are called, right? Among the remnant. Jesus said that salvation was of the Jews, but the question is, when the Jews rejected the truth, would there be someone else who would carry that torch of truth or that light on? And the answer is yes there would be the remnant whom the Lord calls, right? So, what does that word in English, church, mean? Well, it comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means the called out ones, or being called out of, right? Joel says that there would be salvation among the remnant, among those who are called out. Now, let's look at Revelation chapter 12 and let's look at this woman and how she is clothed. You remember that in Bible prophecy, a woman is representative of a church, right? And here we see this pure church, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. And notice what it says. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Isn't it interesting that this woman, this pure church, is clothed with all of the natural light of God, 
the sun and the moon and the stars. This is God's pure church. And notice what the Bible says in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Now, let me make a connection with you here that you might have just missed and just we just went right over the top of it. Remember what I just read to you a moment ago, and that is that this woman is clothed with all of the natural beauty of God, right? All of the natural light. What does the Bible call the sun and the moon and the stars? The heavens. The church declares the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Did you see that connection? That's pretty cool, isn't it? And so this woman is clothed with the types of things that bring glory to God. And if you look at those symbolically, you see that the sun is the full light of the Gospel era, or that represents the New Testament, and the moon represents the symbols and the shadows that were pointing forward that represents the Old Testament. And so here we see that if we're going to truly have a correct understanding of the Bible, we've got to study both the Old Testament and the New. And it really puts away with that idea that some churches say, well, we don't go by the Old Testament anymore, right? But you have to have both if you're going to have a correct understanding of Scripture. Remember what we read in Isaiah 28, verse 10? We have to put line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. We have to put it all together. But let's keep reading. Chapter 12, Revelation, verse 2. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with an iron rod. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she was uh, has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Here is the church that is represented in all of its purity. And Christ comes on the scene and there is the dragon waiting to devour him. And we know that we see that in Herod trying to kill him, right? And it says that she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with what? With a rod of iron. And if you go to Revelation chapter 19, you'll discover rather quickly that that rod of iron is Jesus Christ. And then after that comes this parenthetical passage where it's talking about the dragon. And then you go down to verse 13 and it says, And now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, time and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. And so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Now we've already talked about this passage to some degree and it's talking about how God's church would begin to experience that persecution and that early as that early church began to become corrupt and yet there were still true believers 
that were in that church who were being persecuted by the church and they would have to flee into the wilderness. Did you know that all but one of the disciples died a martyr's death? There was great persecution. The the dragon was trying to snuff out the church, right? And after that, Satan turned his wrath fully on the woman, that is the Christian church. And when he saw that he couldn't kill the child, that's when he went after the woman, right? He went he couldn't kill Christ or he tried to. He did kill Christ, but he rose from the dead. And now he's angry and he's going after the church. And so the church flees into the wilderness for 1,260 days. And we know in prophecy a day equals a year. And so that was really 1,260 years. And he spews out this water trying to destroy God's people. And we talked about what that meant, didn't we? You see, for over a thousand years after the apostles died, if you were to look in the uh, yellow pages for the church, you would discover there was only one church at the time, right? But the church began to apostatize. The church began to be corrupt. So what happened? She was no longer the vessel of God's truth and God's church fled into the wilderness. Right? The woman is the church. She fled into the wilderness. That's God's true church. Revelation 12, verse 6 says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And if you take that wilderness and you compare that to water we know in bible prophecy that water represents richly densely populated areas and so the wilderness would be a sparsely populated area right an unpopulated area and we see that the church is fleeing to those areas and back in the 1400s you had the waldensian christians who were fleeing into the swiss alps trying to hide from that persecution and there were many people that were fleeing to other places as well the church was in hiding and the scriptures were forbidden to be read and to be interpreted according to your own conscience. The Catholic Church basically said that the common people can't determine what the Bible means for themselves, that it has to be the clergy who is interpreting it for them. But if you have the audacity to try and interpret it for yourself, and what you come up with doesn't agree with them, then you would be labeled a heretic, and they would seek you out and try to punish you for that. Have you ever heard of the Inquisitions? The Roman Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, there were many of them. And the Inquisitions were where they were punishing heretics. And the people who chose to believe something different than the established religion because the Bible was chained during that time, but now it's starting to come out. And so if you wanted to follow the Bible, you had to go into hiding. And that's what this passage is telling us. The woman fled into the wilderness where she was nourished by God for that 1,260 years. Now look with me in Revelation 12. Look at verse 15. It says, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But what? What's verse 16 say? 
But the earth helped the woman, right? And you'll remember that we talked about how our pilgrim forefathers came here from the old country to this nation to rise up out of the earth to the United States of America where they established uh, religious freedom and peace. And then in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, it says, And the dragon was what? Enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Or I like the way the King James says, he went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Now I think that that uh, rest of her offspring is a more accurate translation, but I really like that phrase, remnant of her seed, because we know what a remnant is, don't we? If you have a bolt of cloth and you get down to the last piece, that's called the remnant, right? It's the last of the original. And that's what we're seeing here. It's the last of God's people. It's the last day church. And if it's a remnant, then it should look just like the first day church, shouldn't it? But it's the last day church. So let's look a little closer at God's end time church. It says that this woman represents this church during this 1,260 years of persecution. And so if the woman represented the church during that 1,260 years of persecution, then the remnant would represent the church after that time. Are you with me? It would represent it after that time. And so... We studied before that the reign of the papacy would be from 538 A.D. to 1798 A.D. And so there we see then that the remnant has to appear sometime shortly after 1798. Rather than being scattered and being in hiding, rather than being the woman... Now the church is coming out of hiding. Now the truth is being restored. Now she is the remnant. Amen? Now some people today don't like the idea of organized religion because that's what happens with this remnant church. Now as she is coming out of hiding, now she is becoming organized. Now she is becoming visible as the truth is being restored. But... People don't like the idea of organized religion because when they think of organized religion, they think of that corrupt church, right? But I'll tell you this, I would rather have an organized church than an unorganized one. Amen? And the Bible reveals that God's will for His church is that it would be organized. And there are some great examples in the Bible of God's organized church. You think about the camp of Israel. Every tribe of Israel had a very specific place that they were told that they were supposed to camp around the tabernacle. Our God is a very organized God. And you'll think about the tabernacle itself. It was made according to the specifications of God. God is a God of order. You'll remember that when Jesus started His ministry, He called 12 disciples, right? There was organization there. And then you'll remember that when the disciple that betrayed Him, Judas, hung himself, what did the disciples do? Even before 
the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. They came together. They recognized that there needed to be 12. And so they had a vote and they made Matthias the disciple to replace Judas, right? God has always had an organized church. In Acts chapter 15, there was a disagreement over circumcision. And so did that result in splits and factions in the church? No, they came together in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council and they talked about it and they got that all straightened out and there was harmony in the body of Christ. The early church was a very organized church. Therefore, the remnant church must be an organized church. Amen? And so we see that God's church in the last day would come out of hiding. It would come out from being scattered after that 1,260 years, after 1798. And if you have done any reading on religious history in America, you'll remember that it was in the early 1800s to mid-1800s that there was great religious revival in America. That as the truth was being restored, and as people were reading the Bible for themselves, that now there was this great awakening, and so we should be seeing God's M-time church appearing out of that great awakening. Now, if you go back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, and look at that again, it says, "...the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, or the remnant of her seed, who what? Who keep the commandments of God." Isn't that amazing? In the context of the beast of Revelation who seeks to change God's law, here we see God's remnant people, His end time people, in clear contrast to that, keeping the commandments of God. Amen? The implication is that those who were following not the beast, but God, were keeping all of the commandments of God. And I can't help but see this identifying mark again, the last day test of loyalty between the beast and those who want to hold to custom and tradition and the remnant who keep the seventh day Sabbath. There's a striking contrast there, right? Not based on popular opinion, but based solely on obedience to the commandments of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Did the apostolic church keep the commandments of God? You bet they did. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the what? The commandments of God is what matters. In James chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, it says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. Right? The early church believed in keeping the whole Ten Commandment law. And we have evidence of that as they were keeping the Sabbath in the book of Acts. Now look with me at chapter 12, verse 17 again here in Revelation. And let's note something else. The Bible says, "...the dragon was enraged with a woman. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and what?" and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I find that phrase, testimony of Jesus, to be very fascinating. 
Because if you talk to most Christians today and you ask them, what is the testimony of Jesus? They will tell you, well, that's the testimony that each and every one of us has of what Jesus Christ has done in our life. We all have a personal testimony. That's what people will tell you. And that sounds great, doesn't it? But what does the Bible say? That's what we want to know, isn't it? What does the Bible say is the testimony of Jesus Christ? Well, I'd like you to look with me in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, and notice what it says in verse 9 and 10. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the what? The testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is what? The spirit of prophecy. Aha! The Bible tells us here that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, then what is the spirit of prophecy? Right? I'd like you to go with me to Revelation 22. And notice what it says in verse 8 and 9. And I want you to think about what we just read in Revelation 19, verse 9 and 10. Because we're going to have some very similar things here. It says, Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and I saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, who showed me these things. That's the same thing that happened in Revelation 19, wasn't it? He was going to fall down and worship this angel. And then the angel said to me, see that you don't do that. That's the same thing that we read in Revelation 19, didn't we? For I am your fellow servant. That's the same thing that we just read in in Revelation 19. But now, he says, rather than saying, who have the testimony of Jesus, now he says, and of your brethren the what? the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Here we see that the spirit of prophecy is the gift of prophecy. It's talking about the prophets, isn't it? And so we see here that this remnant church of God would have the prophetic gift. Now, there are some people that say, that there are no prophets after John, right? Once the Bible was written, there would never be any more prophets. But what does the Bible say? Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus Himself said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do you think that Jesus said, Beware of false prophets? Why didn't he just say, beware of anyone who claims to be a prophet? But he made a distinction, didn't he? Because that indicates that there are going to be prophets, both true and false prophets, all the way to the end of time, right? Jesus was warning against those false prophets. Remember, the Bible says, test all things. Don't just take somebody's word for it that there aren't going to be any more prophets till the end of time. But what does the Bible say? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, And He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Let me ask you a question. Do we still need evangelists, pastors, and teachers today? Yes. Then why would we exclude the prophets? 
right? Clearly, they are indicating that they would be there till the end of time as well. In fact, if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, which I don't have on the screen there, it says, until all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. So have we reached the measure and the stature and the fullness of Christ? Have we got there yet? No. Then God can still work through His prophets. But what about the early church? Did the original church have the gift of prophecy? Notice what Acts chapter 11, verse 27 says. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all of the world. Notice in Acts 21, verse 8, it says, Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. The early church definitely had the gift of prophecy. And so my question to you is, then, well, what happened to that gift, right? I'd like to show you that is something that is just downright amazing, but you've got to stick with me. Look with me again at Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Notice the description of that remnant church. They keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy or the gift of prophecy, And if you do a brief perusal through the Bible, it will reveal that those two things always worked in cooperation with each other. The law and the prophets always go together. Think back on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was transfigured, who showed up? Moses and Elijah, that's right. And what did Moses represent? The law, that's right. Moses was the one that gave them the Ten Commandments, right? And who did Elijah represent? The prophets. The law and the prophets always go together. You remember that parable of the rich man and Lazarus? When the answer came back from Abraham, if they believe not in Moses and the prophets, then they won't believe even if somebody comes back from the dead, right? But he pointed them back to the law and the prophets. And you remember on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus was talking to those two disciples, it says that He began with Moses and the prophets revealing everything that it said about Him, right? The law and the prophets. Now, I want to show you something here. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. It's going to be page 792 in that seminar Bible. Isaiah chapter 8, and I want you to notice what it says in verse 20. To the law and to the what? To the testimony. What did we just see the testimony of Jesus is? Prophecy, right? To the law and to the prophets. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Proverbs 29 verse 18 says, Where there is no revelation... The people cast off restraint. I like the way that the King James says it. It says where there is no vision. That's the prophets, right? And when there's no prophecy, the people don't obey the law. They cast off restraints, right? That's what a revelation is. It's a prophetic vision. And where there's no prophetic vision, the people didn't keep the law. Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 4 through 6. Thus says the Lord, 
If you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded them, then I will make this house like Shiloh and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. The prophets were telling the people what to do, but they weren't following it. They weren't keeping the commandments of God. They weren't keeping the law of God. And so God stopped sending them prophets. Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 26 says, Disaster will come upon disaster, and rumor upon rumor. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will perish from the priests and counsel from the elders. In other words, when the people began to rebel against the law of God, God stopped giving them prophetic visions. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 1 through 3 says, It came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord, I will not be inquired of by you. And then you go down to verse 11 and it tells you why God says He won't be inquired of. He says, And I gave them my statutes, and I showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, and they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. In other words, God is saying, Hey, look. When you don't keep the law, don't come and inquire of me. Right? If you're not going to obey my Sabbaths, if you are going to trample on them, then don't come and expect me to hear from you or don't expect me to answer when you come calling. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 9 says, Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. When there was no law, there was no prophets. Here's the point. The early church had the gift of prophecy. But when the church became corrupt and God's Sabbath was trampled on, that prophetic guidance stopped. Do you know why they call it the Dark Ages? Because during that 1260 years, there was no prophecy. It was dark. There was no light. Because truth was cast to the ground and error was being exalted and lifted up. But at the end of that 2300 year prophetic period of Daniel chapter 8, which we talked about already, ended in 1844, that God's law would begin to be restored. What always went hand in glove with the law? Prophecy, right? So in the remnant church, after the law of God had been cast to the ground for that 1260 years, the Bible says that the testimony of Jesus or the gift of prophecy would again be seen in His church when His people started going back and keeping the law, especially that fourth commandment, right? And did that happen? Yes, right on time. In 1844, when that 2300-year period ended, God began to give visions to a young girl at 17 by the name of Ellen Harmon. 
And after marrying a man by the name of James White, she became Ellen White. And the two of them, along with a man by the name of Joseph Bates, would found the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1863. As that truth is being restored and people are seeing that truth, they're coming out of all of these corrupt churches and they're seeing that truth and they're forming the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Over her lifetime, Ellen White had over 2,000 visions and dreams that would point people back to the truth of God's Word. Now, let me just pause here for a moment and say something. I understand that we need to use extreme caution when we start talking about anyone who claims to be a prophet, right? And I, and I just happen to know that there are many broad claims to the gift of prophecy. In fact, I'll just give you a couple of them. Mary Baker Eddy of the Christian Science Movement. And Joseph Smith of the Mormons, right? They both claim to be prophets. But I want to point you to something. The primary fundamental problem with most false prophets is that they believe that their revelations are better revelations. They believe that they have teachings that even though they may contradict the Bible, that they are better, they are more pure because they somehow replace or supersede the teachings of the Bible. But I don't accept that line of reasoning at all. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. To the law and to the prophets. Right? If they speak not according to that Word, then there is no light or there is no truth in them. Beware of those who point to their visions as your rule of faith. Now, in direct contrast to that, notice the writings of Ellen White. She said in a book called Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 29, I recommend to you, dear reader, the Word of God as the what? The rule of your faith and practice. By that Word, we are to be judged. God has in that Word promised to give visions in the last days, not for a new rule of faith, but for the comfort of His people and to correct those who err from Bible truth. In other words, she's saying God is providing this prophetic gift to bring us out of that error that has been there for that 1,260 years of papal reign when the truth was cast to the ground. That is the purpose in it. And she says, little heed is given to the Bible and the Lord has given a lesser light, that's what she called herself, to lead men and women to the greater light. In other words, what she's saying is any true prophet of God should lead you to the Bible. Should lead you to a greater understanding of the truth in God's Word. Not away from the Bible. Not that that my visions are now superseding or are any better than the Bible. But even those have to be in agreement with the Bible. Notice what Dr. Clive McKay had to say about the writings of Ellen White on the subject of health things that she wrote about after she received vision on them. 
He said her basic concepts about the relation between diet and health have been verified to an unusual degree by scientific advances of the past decades. In spite of the fact that the works of Mrs. White were written long before the advent of modern scientific nutrition, no better overall guide is available today. In 1864, Ellen White wrote, Tobacco is a poison of the most deceitful and malignant kind. It is all the more dangerous because its effects upon the system are so slow and scarcely perceivable. Now you might say, well, what's so radical about that? Everybody knows that smoking's bad for you, right? But notice when she wrote it in 1864. At that point, there were many doctors that were telling their patients that they needed to smoke to help with their lung condition. It wasn't until 1957 that the American Heart Association concluded that smoking was a causative factor in lung cancer. That's almost a hundred years after she wrote that statement. They finally caught up. According to a 2005 National Geographic study, Seventh-day Adventists are one of three groups that are said to live the longest, healthiest lives, and the other two groups were the Okinawans of Japan and the Sardinians of Italy. Now, not so ironically, is this lifestyle that resulted from the counsel of Mrs. White that she received in vision that has made Adventists living up to seven years longer than the national average. But it's interesting, too, that if you go to Okinawa, Japan, and you go to the Sardinians in Italy, as they are taking on the Western diet, they're losing their longevity. But the Seventh-day Adventists aren't because it's not about culture, it's about their faith, right? They've incorporated that healthy lifestyle right into their faith. Now, Jesus said that you would know a profit by its fruits, right? Notice what the New York Independent said in an obituary on Ellen White, August 23, 1915. It said she showed no spiritual pride and she sought no filthy liqueur. She lived the life and did the work of a worthy prophetess, the most admirable of all the American succession. You never heard of Paul Harvey? Notice what Paul Harvey said once about her. He said, women have been honored on American postage stamps for more than 100 years. Many women authors, Lucia Alcott, Emily Dickinson, Willie Cather, Rachel Carson, and I can name an American woman author who has never been honored thus, though her writings have been translated into 148 languages, more than Marx or Tolstoy, more than Agatha Christie, more than William Shakespeare. Only now is the world coming to appreciate her recommended prescription for optimal spiritual and physical health. Ellen White, Ellen White. You don't know her? Get to know her. That was Paul Harvey as an outsider of the Adventist church. He said that, but after he said this, years later he then became a Seventh-day Adventist. So he's no longer an outsider, but at the time he was. Now, this is one particularly interesting statement. This is in a book about the truth about the Seventh-day Adventists by Walter Martin. Now, Walter Martin was a guy who wrote about all different kinds of religions, and he states that he disagrees with the Seventh-day Adventist beliefs about the Sabbath and about what happens to you when you die and those kinds of things. 
and he appears to have these claims for why he doesn't believe that. But in the midst of his explanation, I'd like you to notice what he says. After reading the publications of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination and almost all the writings of Ellen G. White, including her testimonies, the writer believes that Mrs. White was truly a regenerate Christian woman who loved the Lord Jesus Christ and dedicated herself unstintingly to the task of bearing witness for Him as she felt led. But no one can dispute the fact that her writings conform to the basic principles of the historic gospel, for they most certainly do. And then he continues on. All that she wrote on such subjects as salvation or Christian living characterizes her as a Christian in every sense of the term. You ever heard of C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis once said this, Those people who say that Jesus was a good man, he said, I don't think that flies. He said that Jesus has to be one of three things. He either has to be a liar because he claimed to be the Son of God and he wasn't, or he has to be a lunatic because he's just out there on the fringe, or he has to be the Lord because he said he was. There's only three possible options. Ellen White, all through her ministry, led thousands and thousands of people to Christ. She is either a true prophet or she's a false prophet. She said herself, either my work is of God or it is of the enemy. Friends, there's no halfway. Right? And the same is true of Jesus. There's no halfway. He's either the Christ or He's a lunatic. Right? So if she is a false prophet... I think the devil needs to get himself a new false prophet because of her, thousands and thousands of people have given their hearts to Christ. Amen? Either she's a liar or she's a lunatic or she truly was a prophet of God. And Walter Martin, when he says that he doesn't believe her teachings, but then he says that she was a good Christian, I don't think that that flies, right? I don't think that that follows. You can't be a good Christian in the sense of the term and claim to have visions and dreams from God and for them to be false at the same time. It doesn't go together. I believe they were a fulfillment of Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. It says that the gift of prophecy would be restored. It has to be sometime after 1798 that the truth would be restored and people would be coming back and keeping the law of God. Revelation 12, verse 17 says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. You know, the dragon has always hated those who obey God's law. And the dragon is enraged with those who keep the commandments of God and they have the spirit of prophecy. Now, you might say to me, Pastor, I don't know. I'm not sure that I agree with you. Well, let me just say this. If you don't see the truth here, then you better start looking somewhere else. Because it clearly says that the spirit of prophecy would be in the remnant church of God. So if it's not here, I ask you, where is it? Where is it? Some people hear that, you know, one of the founders of the church was a prophet and they'll say, oh, you know, those Adventists, they base all of their beliefs on their prophet. But let me remind you of something. We are in night 20 
of 21 of this series. And this is the first time that I've mentioned her. Everything that I've said to you, I've taken directly from the Word of God. Friends, there is a reason why the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and some other small groups came up at about the same time that the Seventh-day Adventist church did. Because Satan always has his counterfeits. And he always has something that he's going to use to try and distract people and pull them away from the truth. The devil wants to marginalize the truth and keep people from seeing it. You see, there's another major characteristic of God's end-time church. And that is that we are Satan's special target. What, remember what it said? And the devil was enraged with a woman. Right? He's angry with this church. What kind of PR do you think that you're going to get if the devil is angry with you? The devil is always hurling his insults. He's always painting us in a very bad light. And that's what the devil has done for anyone who tries to follow the truth. So what about the early church? What did they say? Acts chapter 24, verse 5. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the what? of the sect of the Nazarenes. In other words, he's saying this man is the leader of a cult group. That's what it's saying. You remember what they said about Jesus? He was casting out demons by the prince of demons. That's what the religious leaders were saying about Jesus and about the church. Right? And it hasn't changed. If you are angry with this remnant church, you're going to try and paint it in a bad light. And that's exactly the same thing they were doing with the early church. So it should be the same thing in the remnant church, shouldn't it? But Jesus said in Luke 6.26, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Right? Friends, it's not always a good thing to be popular. It's not always a good thing when everyone is speaking well of you. The devil must not be mad if that is happening. But there's one more characteristic that I want you to look at, and that is that the end-time church must be a worldwide mission-focused church. Matthew 24, verse 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The gospel has to be preached to the entire world. I'd like you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. And I want you to notice something here. We've talked about this already. But in Revelation 14, verse 14, it talks about Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven, having a sharp sickle in His hand, ready to reap the harvest of the earth, right? But right before that second coming, there's the gospel message in the context of present truth that has to be given to the world, isn't it? And we talked about this already. Remember that? It says that just before the end comes, that the fulfillment of the Gospel being preached to all the world is given to every kindred, tongue, people, and nation, and it has to include that Gospel message of present truth, right? And you remember the three messages? Starting in verse 6, Revelation 14, verse 6, 
Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. Right? We've already talked about that. We're in the judgment hour. Then you get the second message that says Babylon is fallen. And when is Babylon fallen? When the truth starts being restored, that's when Babylon starts to fall. And then you have that third message of don't take the mark of the beast. This is not a generic gospel that has to go out to the world. And I believe that God has raised up this remnant church the Seventh-day Adventist church, not because the people in it are the only ones that are going to be saved, not because there's no problems in the church, but He is using this church as a vessel of truth to share that gospel message with the world that we need to get right with Him. Amen? Now you may say, well, that's nice, but I just don't see how this is fulfilling all of the identifying marks of the remnant church. Friends, look at that again. What were those identifying marks? That the remnant church has to rise shortly after 1798. It has to keep all of the commandments of God. It has to have the gift of prophecy in its midst and it has to be a prophet that's pointing people to God and to the Word of God, not away from it. And it has to be a worldwide movement. It has to be organized. It can't be a small church out there doing their own thing. right? The Seventh-day Adventist church is in over 200 of the 229 nations that are registered with the United Nations. It has to go to all the world. And I believe God wants a vessel of truth in the end. And notice what it says in St. Catherine's Sentinel, this is a Catholic document. Notice what they said, May 21st, 1995. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday. Not from any directions noted in the Scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. People who think that the Scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. This is the enemy of God telling you where you should go. Amen? Friends, the false teachings of Babylon are going to provide no safety. And so the Bible says, come out of her, my people. Come out of that system of error. And where you go is your choice. John chapter 10, verse 16 says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. Just like the devil is trying to bring all of the world back under the umbrella of the Catholic Church, Christ is bringing all of His people out of those corrupt churches back under the umbrella of His remnant church. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I'm going to bring them out. I believe that God is trying to unite all Christians to the truth in these last days. The Bible says there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And I don't think that the church of God is going to be splintered. Right? I think it is going to be Jesus uniting His church for these last days. Could it be that God will have a people that are going to be united in the truth in these last days.
Friends, are you looking for a place that keeps all of the commandments of God? Are you looking for a place that fits the description of the remnant church? They keep the commandments of God and they have the spirit of prophecy. Friends, there's only one church in the world that fits that description. Do you want to be a part of that church? I'm going to ask you if you do to stand with me now. You want to be a part of the remnant church? Make that stand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you see all of these that are standing. Lord, you know our hearts. Our desire is to be where the truth is. Lord, that's why I'm here. I want to follow the truth. I want to be with God's remnant people. And Lord, I know that all these standing do too. And Lord, our prayer is that You would prepare us for the things that are coming upon the world. Lord, there is a deception that is going to sweep away the majority of people. And we don't want to be caught up in it. We want to make that stand now for the truth. And Lord, our prayer is that You would give us the wisdom that we need, that You would prepare us for those days. Pour out Your Spirit upon all flesh. And Lord, guide us into Your everlasting, ever-loving arms. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.